All right. We have a lot of really great stuff to jump into today. So for the sake of saving time, I think we can get started. Um, so welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, my team that's on the phone with me already knows that I'm going to start out with a little uh, New Year's New Year's wish joke. But um, I was talking to a client last week, and I was actually informed that the the unspoken rule about not being able to wish someone a happy new year beyond the first week of January actually comes from a Seinfeld episode, which I admittedly have not seen. Um, but apparently it's an episode where Jerry tells Elaine that somebody wished him a happy new year and her response is it's January 7th. That's disgusting. Um, so regardless, since this is our first monthly webinar of 2022, I just wanted to Wish everybody a happy new year and thank everybody again for joining us for our third consecutive panel discussion um, with today's feature on some of our Listen First's very own in-house social experts to talk about social trends for the year ahead of us. So we're really excited to have the Listen First team here and all of you who are listening in. Um, I'm seeing a lot of familiar names by now on the, the list of participants, which is awesome. But um, for those who I don't already know, my name is Megan Cahill. Um, I head up client experience here at Listen First. And um, I just want to go through a couple really quick admin things um, before we dive in. So first things first, as always, the webinar is being recorded. So the recording will be sent out to everybody who's participating today um, early next week and um, will always be available with all of our other webinars on the in the listen first help center for any listen first customers um, and just in terms of questions obviously we have a panel discussion today where we have a number of canned questions that we'll walk through with our panelists but we love audience q a so as we go through please feel free to pop your questions into the q a box um, via zoom and we will sprinkle them in throughout um, depending on you know where where we have space to answer relevant questions and then we'll batch everything else for the end so um if for some reason we don't get to your question um, please include your name if you feel comfortable when you submit it so that we can follow up with you afterwards to make sure that we get answers to everybody who asked stuff all right, a uh, quick overview of our agenda for today. Um, well, as usual, just do a really quick flyover of Listen First, who we are, what we do. Um, then I'll introduce you to our lovely panelists for today. Uh, then we'll jump into uh, our sort of marketing uh, analytics outlook for 2022, followed by our panel discussion. And then we'll take um, additional questions from the audience at the end. So jumping into the quick overview, um, so for anyone not familiar with Listen First already, um, we are a SaaS company and we have a very specific focus on removing the silos between disparate sets of social media data and saving you time by aligning all of your owned, paid, earned, organic, all those kinds of social data into one view and providing in-depth analysis tools to turn data into more actionable insights that actually drive your social strategy and help you accomplish your business ROI. Um, we are leveraged by global enterprise brands across various industries, as you can see here, to ultimately drive their social strategies. And we do often sit alongside a suite of other social tools that are focused more on execution, but we operate as the sole and, and really the most in-depth solution focused specifically on analytics and the generation of insights, which is 
exactly what our lovely strategy team who's on the phone today um, does at Listen First. So a little bit about how we do this. There are a number of things that really kind of set us apart from other vendors in our space. Um, specifically, we all know that there are many solutions out there and everybody has access to a lot of the same data APIs from partners like Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. But it's what we do with the data that really sort of differentiates us from the pack. So a few things that really make us unique. One is our data taxonomy. This gives our customers the ability to really analyze at the parent level, all the way down to the individual brand or product level for over 250,000 brands with more than seven years of historical data available. Um, this taxonomy, along with all of the syndicated measurement tools that we have built into our system, um, and also the, the ability to have a single place to look at paid, owned, earned, and competitive data is what we feel really is the key to sort of understanding performance and ultimately being able to drive strategy with the social data. Lastly, I always like to highlight our award-winning services. Um, so our team of software support, customer success, and professional services um, team make us or make sure that they really understand your business and um, anticipate your needs and really deliver an unparalleled level of, of customer service to you that we have actually won awards for. So when we call it award-winning, we really mean it. <laughs> um, and then lastly, these are some of the core use cases that Listen First customers leverage us for most often. So touching all parts of the marketing funnel here, starting from research and development, all the way through reporting results and key learnings. Um, these are, there are some of the core functions that we really pride ourselves on uh, excelling at from a software and services standpoint. So now I would like to introduce to you our three panelists for today. As I mentioned, um, our panelists today are all members of our in-house strategy team at Listen First. So they are the Listen First experts when it comes to um, executing on and learning from what you get from Listen First in terms of social data. So first, um, I'd like to introduce Sam, who is our director of strategy. So Sam is the, she's it. She's the head honcho. She, she leads the whole strategy team at Listen First. Um, everything from, you know, defining the templates that we use and the approaches that we take to helping our customers understand and decipher insights from all of the data that they can get through our tool. Um, Sam kind of runs the ship um, in that regard and has been at Listen First for many years, seen many iterations of the tool, of all of the data partners that we work with, and has a really, really awesome understanding of the, the industry as a whole, but also how analytics and, and leveraging Listen First kind of fits into the overall industry. Next up, we have John, who is a senior strategist um, focusing more specifically on retail and CPG customers at Listen First. So he um, comes to the table also with a lot of really great experience and insights and will be able to provide a really helpful perspective for those of you who work in uh, more so on the brand side of things. Um, he uh, really does an awesome, awesome job of guiding his customers in terms of um, helping them decipher the data and really turn it into actionable insights that they can take with their strategy and, and optimize their performance um, 
easily. <laughs> and then lastly, we have Sawyer, another, another superstar on our strategy team. Um, Sawyer is a manager of strategy in our group, has been with us for a couple of years and has also been through many iterations of the, the Listen First tool and the ways in which we partner with um, many different types of clients. Um, she's specifically focusing in the M&E space right now, so coming with a little bit of a different perspective and, and background than what John is going to be able to provide, but again, someone else who partners very, very closely with some of our largest media and entertainment customers um, and leads a team of strategists who um, really know the ins and outs of, of how to optimize social for media and entertainment specifically. All right. Um, so just before we jump into our panel discussion, we did want to share some insights that we recently collected from a recent survey of roughly 200 marketing and analytics professionals um, that we sent out just before the holidays. This is a really nice tee up to, I think, some of the things that we'll be discussing more in depth with our panelists today. So I just want to call out a few key highlights. Um, first of all, no surprise, Instagram is not going anywhere in 2022 in terms of being a priority. And while it did continue to evolve a bit um, in terms of the way brands are leveraging it, Facebook also still remains a really key player for marketers. Um, next, given the importance of those two channels specifically and the way that they now work, for better or worse, um, more than half of marketers do plan to spend more on social in 2022 than they did in years past and will be focused a lot more on video content than they ever have been before. And that's definitely something that we'll talk a lot more about today in the panel. And then last, um, proving ROI continues to be a challenge for brands when it comes to the importance of social media overall and um, competitive or industry context is also lacking. So the, the context piece is in particular a really great tee up for uh, shameless plug our February webinar, which we'll talk a little bit more about the end of today. Um, but that February webinar is going to be focused on key metrics to use for benchmarking. Um, so we'll share more information on that at the end of today's panel. And now we get into the good stuff, um, our panel discussion. <laughs> so we have five questions that we're going to go through with our panelists today. Um, the first one is, uh, you know, considering how all over the place the last year or really two plus years has been. I know this is a tough question, um, but what's one word that you would use to sum up what you expect um, for 2022 when it comes to social? So Sam, we'll start with you. Yeah. So the first thing that comes to mind is dynamic. That's the word that I usually think of. Um, so one thing I love about working in this industry is that there's always something new to learn. Um, you always feel like you're constantly playing catch up trying to find out the next best thing and trying to get ahead. Um, but it's a good challenge to have, whether it be a new metric uh, availability in the platforms API or in our software, um, a new content type um, that's starting to take off organically or with an algorithm play. So I'm talking about reels competing with TikTok here. And then trends and user behavior are constantly evolving. So you're always trying to be a step ahead of the competition and trying to figure out what that element is, whether it be in social or in reporting uh, is the fun part. Awesome. How about you? Mine, I think, would just be like unpredictable. Um, I think that with the adoption of TikTok coming in so hot in the last couple of years, 
that it's just really told us a lot about um, how users like to interact and um, consume their media. And that is just like so quick and changing constantly, kind of like Sam said. I mean, people have the smallest attention span now. It used to be like the length of a goldfish memory and now we're like at a nap. So um, it used to be that TikTok had the, you could only post up to 60 seconds and now it's three minutes, but then they introduced sort of the feature where you can skip ahead and everybody, I mean, I use it all the time. It's like, I get just what I want and then I scroll to the next. So it's kind of that quick, it's happening fast. And then also the interesting thing is now algorithms are so sophisticated that they're really tailoring the content that people are seeing. And you live in kind of this like niche microcosm that you have created for yourself. So I am on like a weird side of TikTok that I think everybody else is seeing. I mentioned it to my friend and they're like, I've literally never heard of that before. You're crazy. <laughs> so you're trying to capture this audience that you have, but even they're like fragmented with it within that. So it's just an unpredictable time and figuring out what your users want when they're all living in their own worlds. Right. Yeah. All right, John, last but not least. Yeah, mine's um, similar, I guess. Um, I had chosen informed, um, or at least hopefully so for everyone on this call. <laughs> um, very often, I feel like I see brands sort of, even with this long chain of approvals and, and approval process through their, their uh, team or whatever, uh, they're sort of posting first uh, using hypothetically strong strategies, things that work on paper, something that at least makes sense uh, when you when you discuss it. Um, and then they're asking questions later um, about performance and just sort of hoping that the things that they laid out and, and the plan that they had written out um, just came to fruition. And um, so really I'm hoping, and, and you know, with brands are looking to connect with fans in such a data-laden environment these days, and there's so much opportunity really to be learning from like other teams um, or other brands' successes and, and failures. And so if you're thinking about doing something on social media, chances are someone's done something similar enough, right? And it, and it worked or didn't for them. And so I think really there's no end-all be-all strategy uh, to social media other really than just staying informed, so. And if you're not informed, maybe you should be using Listen First, right? <laughs> <I'm almost plugged. laughs> couldn't, couldn't let that slide. <laughs> All right. Awesome. So now that we have that kind of tee up for the year, um, you know, I'd love to jump into our second question, obviously more, more robust as we, we move past that, that first kind of icebreaker question, but um, I'd love to talk about what you guys see as some of the biggest opportunities for brands this year, um, you know, given, given the current landscape. So um, Sam, let's start with you on this. Yeah. So the way I tried to look at this question was like, how are we looking at reporting? Um, so over the years, you know, traditionally we've always looked at glamour metrics. So anything that's flashy, like your total followers, your total engagements, your impressions at a post level when you launch a trailer, um, your total Twitter conversation for the week. Um, all these are great, uh, but there is another angle to look at beyond those core four things that I just spoke about. So I would even consider the users engaging in this fashion, um, either following, commenting, liking, or tweeting to be your minority audience that's on social. Um, something we've been taking a look at are more lurker metrics. So they're actually called page view metrics, but just these people are just in the abyss. They're online, they're seeing everything. Um, and these are the silent majority of who's online. Um, so these people are looking at your social pages. They're seeking out new information about your brand, but they're not engaging with your content quite yet. Um, 
and looking at this information gives you a sense of how many people are actually viewing what you're putting out. Um, so it's beyond what people are actually engaging with, but who is also seeing it. Um, so looking at one of the lurker metrics that we are focusing on that I've been focusing on recently this year um, is page level impressions. Um, so how many times a user clicks into your profile? And this example I'm about to give, it's about it's all about Instagram. So Instagram is the you know platform that's not going away. We just saw on that last slide, Megan was uh, going over. But and I looked at streaming brands specifically because all eyes are on them right now. Um, but the average streaming brand in 2021. Um, throughout the entire year generated an average of 24 million engagements on Instagram, um, which is impressive. But if you look at the same time frame, uh, the average streaming brand also earned 3.5 billion page view impressions on average last year. So that's nearly 160 times the volume when you compare that to the engagement activity. So you really have that many more people looking at your pages, but a fraction of that is actually engaging. Um, me and Sawyer were actually talking about this uh, last week, just you know, going over what we were gonna discuss. And she brought up a really, really great point. So since more people are on streaming, they're not watching cable as much um, and they're watching all their shows on demand they're not seeing as many cable advertisements as you would 10, 20, 30 years ago. So social is essentially the new TV ad. So those billions of people who didn't engage with your content, they're just your viewers. They saw it. Um, but we, I thought that was a fantastic way to think about this one. And then the other lurker metric that we uh, like looking at is search volume. So we use Wikipedia by proxy for this one. Um, we have a great metric called Interscore that a lot of M&E clients uh, use very frequently um, for a measure of success. And that's the sum of your Wikipedia page views and your Twitter conversation volume. And this metric gives you a great sense of your user's organic interest in your brand. But in Interscore, the ratio of search typically uh, overperforms when you compare to uh, Twitter conversation volume. So you see that ratio of Wikipedia search be about 70 to 30. Um, but the idea is people love to seek out more information about your new series or film or whatever you have going on before becoming a fan or engaging with your content. Um, another quick stat here. So the average film or TV title in 2021 saw eight times more Wikipedia page views compared to their Twitter conversation volume in that same period. So Wiki just gives you a better read on your brand awareness overall. Um, but in closing, uh, Glamour metrics, they're great uh, for a quick pulse check. Um, but if you want to take a look at the big picture here, uh, page view metrics are a great gauge for that. Awesome. Sawyer, John, did either of you have anything that you wanted to add to that? I know that was a very robust answer. <laughs> very robust. Yes. Uh, Sam and I were having a really interesting conversation about how it really has changed. People aren't consuming commercials anymore. I mean, I feel like the only time I've ever really thought about a commercial is Super Bowl or some really big TV event that I have to watch on one of the ad-driven uh, streamers. And it really shifted my, these lurker met metrics kind of shifted my mindset because I feel like we look at engagement rate a lot, which we calculate as engagements, likes, comments, shares, over impressions to say, this is kind of what your conversion rate is. You put this money behind it, it's generated X amount of impressions, but like, what did that really give you? And sometimes like mm, this number isn't really impressive and you overlook those, that lurker metric that, I mean, it's this many people saw it and not everyone's going to want to comment. Not everyone's going to like or share because that's like, takes a lot of effort for a lot of people these days. Um, so it's easy to overlook how impactful just getting in front of someone's eyes is. Yes. Thumbs get a lot of workout just from the, the scrolling motion, right? 
<laughs> it's a lot of extra effort to double tap. <laughs> I don't want people to see what I'm sharing. That's that's personal yeah. if I like <laughs> The Bachelor a little too much. <laughs> Very true. Awesome. John, anything from you on this one? Um, no, I think that really they covered it. I just think um, that was interesting. I mean, even when they shared with me that sort of thinking about ads as a commercial, right? Like people seeing your things, um, just because not a lot of people are engaging with it, don't think that no one's seeing it, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> awesome. All right. So um, moving on to question number three. Um, we cannot talk about really 2021 or 2022 without talking about TikTok. Um, so what are some of the most effective publishing tactics that we're starting to see on TikTok now that we've had some time to really gather actual metrics around performance um, and, and you know how brands are approaching sort of different publishing tactics? Um, John, let's go to you on that one first. Yeah, for sure. Um, so TikTok is really just very different from other channels. Um, it, the algorithm is really kind of in its own way, um, not focused on your own audience so much um, as you might be on other channels where kicking off a TikTok page and growing an audience like can be slow, but your content is very like, um, has strong opportunity to go viral and things like that. Um, I've seen brands hovering around like 10,000 views per TikTok and suddenly with shares and reposts um, on one TikTok, it can launch into the 10 million view range or something like that. And that's a great way to be driving new fans to your page and things like that. And sort of it grows exponentially from there. Um, focusing on producing like a strong portfolio of content that a consumer finds worth sharing um, can help drive further fan growth. Um, it really is just this thing where people will just share and repost things without following you and it'll just spread like wildfire. And so sometimes it just takes that one key piece of content. Um, that said, uh, brand authenticity uh, is always a focus across all channels. Um, TikTok is no exception to that. Um, while having fun and like chiming in on trends help to humanize your brand, um, don't try to like hide the fact that you're a brand and you're marketing something um, to your audience. Just it can be a little disingenuous sometimes when people sort of hide the fact that they're really trying to sell something in the at the end of the day. Um, also, we get a lot of questions sort of about influencers on TikTok and I guess throughout um, different channels, but on TikTok it applies as well. Um, can be a little bit of a double-edged sword sometimes, if not leveraged appropriately. Uh, having a reputable name represent your brand or product, pretty much a good look. Um, but you know, many fans of influencers don't like to see sponsored content. So it doesn't always work out when you just sort of send a product or, or, or have an influencer just review your product and say, I love it, hashtag ad paid for by that brand that I just said I loved. Um, so you, you, uh, utilizing influencers in a way where you enable them to sort of do something fun or new with your help um, rather than paying for just a good review is usually a good way to leverage influencers. Um, say, for example, you were a camera company um, and you, or a GoPro or something, right? And you send your product to an influencer and they use your product to sort of make a short film or, or show sort of what your product is capable of and the, and the results are there. For the viewer to see instead of just having to take a, you know a, a paid influencer's word for it um, making sure that there's some sort of authenticity through influencer stuff is definitely important um, more overall uh, on TikTok, um, some do's and don'ts i had here um, was thinking 
definitely be checking out competitive performance as I was talking about before. Um, someone's probably tried it, it worked or didn't work for them or something similar like that. Um, understand your current and target audience. Um, TikTok skews kind of younger and users are usually on there looking for entertainment. So ask yourself like, is my content funny or is it interesting or is it at least visually eye-catching um, and something like that. And just remembering that sort of your audience, your target audience isn't your fan follower, isn't your follower footprint. Um, the idea here is that the content reaches out sort of beyond just the demographics of those following you um, and you're hoping to appeal sort of to a broad range. Um, and hopefully, you know, they'll share it and you'll earn millions and millions of views. <laughs> um, encourage interaction on your TikToks, definitely. Um, something like a stitch challenge uh, where you create a piece of content and hopefully people chime in with you know, uh, more content in response. Um, those usually do pretty well. I know the NBA did one with um, Zach Levine and it was what makes you an NBA fan. And so people just stitched their TikTok onto the back end of that and talked about why they like the NBA. That one was rather cut and dry. Um, Amazon Prime Video um, for Without Remorse did a scene where Michael B. Jordan um, is like, he looks like really discombobulated and he's like rubbing like a wound or something and a door opens and then everyone um, stitched at, in them opening a door and just sort of like one girl was like, oh, Michael, like, you know, and so it was pretty funny, a pretty funny response. And it sort of helps promote uh, the, you know, their product, their um, show. And then San Diego Zoo also did one where they just posted um, like a bird like singing in one of their um, one of their birds singing and it said like uh, please like duet with this bird like first per best person or, or the winner will you know earn tickets to come to the San Diego Zoo and stuff and it was quite a wild uh, song by a bird so people were responding with all sorts of funny um, sounds that I didn't know humans could make I guess <laughs> but. Um, and then also just be patient. I mean, not every TikTok is gonna go viral, right? Like just keep churning them out, thinking that, you know, do what you think will work, but don't be upset when they don't work. Um, it takes sort of a little bit of magic sometimes. There's, um, you can strategize all you want, but yeah, sometimes it just takes that spark. Um, some things that, that I would- Oh, oh sorry. That? Go ahead. I just okay. have a little follow-up questions that going off script, but, um, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm curious, like, is volume the play on TikTok? Like if, you know, if something's um, not catching is, is the strategy that we're seeing, like just continue to turn out a high volume of content or is it like a, you know, post once every couple of days and you'll get a viral, you know, hit once a month. I don't know I if you within, have an answer. Yeah, but. within reason, right? Like you don't want to just be putting out like bad content or, or under thought or, or low quality content just for the sake of having more. Um, if, you know, at some point you're going to start to understand your baseline of like what's kind of average for your brand. And as so long as content is sort of not super underperforming and things like that. Um, if it's not blowing up, that's no reason to sort of just can that whole strategy. Um, if you if you believe in a strategy and it's showing some promise, um, yeah, go with it. Like keep putting those out. Um, don't be discouraged by sort of average performance or, or right. like regular performance, I guess. Mostly, yeah. So just kind of like trial and error at first and then trying yeah. to find that sweet spot where you're not having, you know, 
five pieces of content that completely bomb and two pieces of content that do well, you know, you kind of have to find that that sweet spot in the middle to benchmark your performance against. Yeah, for sure. I mean, definitely if something is tanking, just stop doing it. <laughs> or if you're getting like, <laughs> or if you're getting like overwhelmingly like negative sentiment on something like that, where everyone in your comments are saying, what is this? Like, I don't, I don't get it or, or stuff like that. Maybe those are some good indicators on maybe to pause that kind of content and stuff like that. But um you know, there's a balance, right? Just keep putting out content that you would stand behind. Don't don't lower your quality standards just for the sake of having more content. Um, and then some other things, I guess, good segue um, that I was thinking not to do on TikTok would be don't just create content on like an unresearched hypothesis. Um, I know sort of at my last job, we had some ideas where we would all sit in a room and come up with these great plans and it would like be seem like such a good idea and then we would wonder all day long why it didn't work and it would be because we all just sat in a bubble and told ourselves it would work and didn't really research that this is not a strategy that's very strong um so just see if anyone else has done it this is like i, I don't know how many times i could re can't could reiterate this point um just check to see if anyone's done it yet and how it did for them um don't uh going back to influencers don't just ask them to like talk highly of your brand or your product or something um there's so many of these direct to consumer products um out today where they the brand will just send an influencer a product the person is paid to review it and just says oh i love it it's so great uh go out and buy it my sponsored link is below and so you lose a lot of um, authenticity there because people really just don't trust a review that's sort of paid for and bought like that. Um, and then I would stay away from um, like faking anything that would be looking genuine, right? If you are posting something that's like, oh my God, look at this funny thing that we caught on camera. Um, don't fake it. I mean, I think that like, it's usually pretty obvious when you watch something and it's like, he didn't really slip and fall on accident like you could tell that it was like fake and so people will sort of call that out and feel like it's just not genuine as well awesome thank you that was that was really helpful i know tiktok is uh, obviously that's still kind of like that that frontier new frontier that everyone's still trying to figure out how to navigate so um you know i think that that guidance will hopefully um help a lot of people on this call in terms of planning their strategy for this year or at yeah, least i hope so you know for how to start <laughs> testing the waters a little bit um sam and sawyer did you have anything that you guys want to add before we move to our next question yeah just super quick i have been noticing over the last you know four or five months that we're seeing tiktok pages be created for an owned brand so outside say like an hbo max you'll have like their brand page but they'll have their titles on there as well like maybe a gossip girl or a, a franchise film um but some advice i would give is that it's really hard to start from scratch so if you have a smaller show that you know is not really gonna take off or you have like an indie film i wouldn't create a tiktok page for that said title um i would keep it focused on more franchise titles to keep that page alive because you'll be posting more often Yeah, I think that makes great sense. Save, save the effort, right? <laughs> Use what you got. Um, awesome. So um, there's been a lot of mention, um, you know, John, even in just your last answer and, and some of the other points that we've already hit on today about 
authenticity. And I like that theme a lot um, because it's also something that came up in our November and December panels that we did with some listen first customers as something that is really, I don't know, ironically, a, a new trend in social that people actually want realness um, from the people that they're following. So, um, you know, I think that it's a, it's a really nice theme that's carried through from all of the different perspective that, perspectives that we've been collecting from um, Listen First customers and other experts in the space um, that's flowing through to, to everything that you guys are seeing. Um, so related to that, um, for our next question, I want to talk about when it comes to social strategies, um, where do you see some of the biggest challenges for brands this year? Um, so Sawyer, we can start with you on this one. Yeah. So of course, my first struggle is authenticity. <laughs> um, almost as my, planned that, right? Almost. What a great segue, Megan. It's like you're reading my mind. Um, <laughs> But I think that it's really hard right now because you want to sort of bridge the gap between not trying to be too relatable because you are a brand. You can't just kind of like participate in these user generated trends that may last a day, may last a few weeks. But you also want to blend in with your audience's feeds. You don't want um, to seem like you're pushing just another ad that's super generic and super commercial because we're already bombarded with those on all of our feeds anyway. And if we're going to opt in to following a brand account, we want to know that it's not just going to be more pushing of your of your product or your streaming service or so on and so forth. Um, so I think that a big part of the shift is going to be moving from focusing on brand identity to a brand personality. So um, the majority of the clients that we work with are more established, you know, now they're really focusing on their marketing strategies and getting into the nitty gritty. And that's where we kind of come in to help inform these decisions, all big and small. Um, but you've already kind of gotten to the point where you're immediately recognizable based on your logos, your colors, that brand identity. It's like you, we can immediately pick up if like Hulu versus Prime Video, you know, we, we know what they look like. We know the interfaces. Um, we just know what it is, but it's the brand personality that's super important. So I think that in the past, we've talked about like flexibility, you know, and adapting to the times. Um, but now it's kind of establishing what your voice is on social, establish, establishing what your personality is and sticking to it. And then if you can fit trends into that, great. But the minute that you start acting like you don't know who you are, you're going to get eaten alive. People know, you know, like people will call you out, like John said, and be like, that's not real. Like you're trying too hard. And then all of a sudden you have negative comments and now you're the meme, which is never the goal. Um, and I thought a really great example of this is on uh, TikTok. There's this guy, Francis, and he's a train spotter and he's just this really innocent guy he kind of blew up on TikTok. He wears a GoPro that looks straight at his face. So it's a really awkward angle, but just pure excitement. And he blew up because people were like, this is just such a positive thing that I see on my feed, pure soul, great. And all of a sudden he shows up in a Gucci ad and everyone was just thinking, wow, this is the craziest crossover we've ever seen. But I think Gucci did a really incredible job integrating him into their brand personality instead of trying to jump on this trend of him like watching trains, they they fit him into their North Face Gucci collab and made him 
like he's wearing the clothing. He looks like he fits with all the models who are in their campaign. So when you put every image from this campaign together, he doesn't stick out, but he does generate this explosion of the second wave of attention towards this campaign because people cannot believe it. It's that shock value. Um, but the way that they did it, again, seamlessly integrating it with their brand personality, staying true to themselves while jumping on a trend. This, the TikTok that they posted with Francis in it actually ended up generating 200% more engagements than their 2021 average. And when dialing that down to just their TikTok page, it actually uh, earned over 999% more engagement than any TikTok that they posted or their TikTok average in 2021. So it's just the prime example of adapting an internet trend to your brand personality and really achieving that authenticity. Um, and he's oh, one of many niche people that are <laughs> trending. I, yeah, I I am not old, but I come out of these the, these last three webinars with literally a list of things that I need to go look up on. Like the last webinar, I came out with like a new eye cream that I needed to. <laughs> Megan, so, you got to yeah. check out Francis. Francis? I, apparently. <laughs> He's the best. Gucci did something similar also with um, a guy, he was on Twitter, his name was Gerald Stratford, he was a gardener out in the UK, did the same thing, just they brought the whole Gucci team out to their farm and he modeled some Gucci clothes while he was digging up carrots and it was the best thing ever, but he's also <laughs> a very, very pure person to just like watch him explain how to grow a tomato and it was just relaxing and it's similar, similar thing as, uh, as Francis that Sawyer mentioned. Noted. <laughs> <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> this is really just a plug for for Francis and right. the Farmer Gerald. Yeah. <laughs> this webinar is sponsored by Francis. Yeah, <laughs> you gotta let him know though. You know, he doesn't. Know. Um, and then the second struggle, I think, and this John mentioned this a little while back, is the approval process. I think when we were in a more traditional space of. Um, of marketing, especially in the traditional like film sense, the theatrical film, it was, it was like you had time to approve the trailers, you had time to approve the posters, and you could kind of like work that out and have it go through all of the rungs of your uh, approval process and lawyers and so on and so forth. And that's a real issue now because like we've said, things are constantly changing and you don't want to be the last one to a, a trend because it takes three weeks to get a piece of content approved by the higher powers. Um, so this also fits into that idea of uh, your brand personality and kind of knowing yourself. So if you can, if you know that you can just immediately post something, you, your social media manager kind of has blanket permission to post what they think is right in the moment. Great. Hop on those trends, find where they fit into your brand and just like get to it. But if you know that it's going to take a few days or a few weeks, it's important to recognize that when curating your campaigns so that, you know, if you're going to try to maybe like maybe posting a meme isn't up your alley because it's going to be too late by the time it goes through the approval process. And, and that's okay. If, if you can't post it, you can't post it. You don't want to be the last one to a trend. It's better to not participate mm -hmm. and know what your limitations are so that you can stay true to that brand personality um, as, as you work past sort of like the corporate red tape that we all face on a, on a daily basis.
Yeah. Sorry, we actually just had a question. I mean, this can be for, for anybody, but um, uh, just a question come came in about that um, specific, you know, building out a brand voice and personality. So um, someone is wondering if you can recommend any best practices to approach developing a brand voice or personality. Should this be informed in part by how consumers talk about the brand on social, i.e. testimonials and things like that, or driven by something else? I think that I think that the testimonials is really key to it. You're going to get feedback, even if you don't want it, and it's going to be positive and it's going to be negative. So, like on Twitter, just looking at the way people reply to it, what what is sparking conversation in the replies? So, let's say you post a meme, and then somebody posts like a secondary meme, and then there are replies to that and added on jokes. That's a really great way to get insight into what your audience is talking about, like separate from you, but about what you're promoting. So it's really that audience feedback and the way that they're taking it and running with it. So you can see where you best integrate into their lives. Cause again, it's all about blending in with your audience. Awesome. Sam or John, did you guys have anything you wanted to add on that before we move to our last question? Sawyer nailed it. Obviously, she's the best. So. Obviously, <laughs> um, I would just add like sometimes creating a brand voice and stuff on social goes beyond your social team. So just make sure you coordinate sort of with your entire marketing department and and just who your brand wants to be across places other than on social media. Um, a, a unified approach is usually much better than sort of a rogue social team approach. So that's a really good point. Yeah, making sure that there's consistency between all those, um, you know, more traditional sources of marketing and, and what you're portraying on social. Awesome. All right. So um, last prepared question um, for today. So thank you to everybody who's starting to submit Q&A questions. Please continue to pop those in. Um, but our last planned question is um, based on basically just like the trends of the world <laughs> over the last couple of years, um, brands, we're seeing a lot of brands that are eager to use their social presence for good. Um, so not, not performing good, but for actually doing something good for, for mankind. So um, do you have any tips on how brands can do this successfully? Um, Sawyer, we can throw to you on this one. I keep hearing my voice more. <laughs> um, I think that, again, throwing it back to a brand personality, a big part of that is practicing what you preach. So a lot of brands, especially when it comes to diversity inclusion now, the bar is set is set now. You have to, there's no more underrepresenting every, every person, every gender identity, race, sexuality, disability, whether that be mental health or like a visible disability. There's no more skirting by that. Um, brands are being held very accountable by their audiences. And I think that the kind of baseline that a lot of people are getting involved with now is making sure that they are have some sort of messaging during Black History Month, Women's History Month, Hispanic Heritage Month, Pride Month, and so on and so forth. But what's often missing is this consistent effort to promote diversity in this everyday way, because your goal is to is to reflect in your content, it's to reflect your audience in your content. And your audience is, is this diverse group of people 
Um, and that it's your responsibility to then make them feel seen, make them feel heard and make them see themselves in your content because it's just such an important part of every part of life right now. And I think that one of the reports that I work on with my team uh, every month for a client is this great diversity, um, we call it a multicultural report. And essentially every month we go through all of their content and measure how much um, POC representation we have, gender identity representation, sexuality, um, and then those um, visible and invisible disabilities. And so they're really holding themselves to this high standard to say like, not only as a brand, are we gonna put this messaging out during these important months, but we're gonna practice what we preach. And we're gonna say that in all of our content, we, we see these people, we understand them and they're important um, to us. And it also kind of brings you back this sort of analysis, you know, on months that they don't miss it, or that they miss their goals, we can look and say, okay, well, what happened? And it's not, there's no excuses for missing it. It's what aren't we doing to get to this goal? And what I found is that it actually helps them figure out more about not only what they're doing on social, but what they're doing as a brand. So I think a lot of the times if they're missing their goals, it's because the, uh, the TV shows and films that they're putting out are featuring predominantly white cisgender casts. So they're not, you put out a poster, you put out a trailer promotion for that, and you're inherently not gonna hit any of your diversity um, marks on those pieces of content. So then it helps you reflect on what you're producing as a brand and saying, well, the, the product we're putting out is also not representing the people that we're serving. So when you, are approaching your social trends and your social um, presence, you can also learn a lot about the way that you're promoting diversity inclusion as, as a brand as well, because again, it's it's not something that people are letting pass them by now. It's people are hyper vigilant, they're holding brands accountable in every facet of every post, every like even just the smallest tweet, this articles written about them. And it's just a um, you have to look at it very holistically and and keep yourself accountable every post that you publish. Yeah. You want to add? Yeah. I just to build on that, I was excited. I went on before the prompts. Uh, but yeah, just circling back to the whole diversity and inclusion piece that Sawyer was touching on, just people are responding in the comments, their feedback. Just respond to that feedback. Um, people are actively telling you ways to improve. Take that into consideration. That's really big. Um, and then in a more mental health space, um, positive messaging is really important on social, um, as, as well as entertainment value. So most people use social media as an escape to reality. Um, you want to make it a positive place. They want to be entertained. You keep them entertained. You keep them happy. They're going to stick around. You're going to build your audience. I could just listen to you say words like ent entertained all day long. Your accent's my favorite. I'm here all week. So, <laughs> um, awesome. So, not to, I don't want to move us away uh, from this question, um, but we did have a couple of good um, Q and A's that came in. Um, that um, well, just the just the cues. Um, we need the A's um, that that are related to a couple of the things that you guys um, have been talking about. So the first one um, that I think is a hits on the general themes of everything we've been discussing today is um, wondering 
about forming engagement for B2B companies as opposed to B2C companies? Are there any stark differences that you guys can call out in terms of the approach um, that a B2B company should be taking compared to some of the more B2C examples that we've been talking through today? Yeah, I think um, I think sort of that brand voice and personality takes a little bit of a backseat when you're a B2B company. Um, you're really looking to show results and, and show sort of why you're worth it to another business. And um, a business consumer is going to think like a business, right? And it has to make sense for them financially. And it has to um, be something that really is going to drive their success forward. Um, so when you could sort of be sort of be um, creating this personality among consumers where they, they enjoy following you and it's fun and it's sort of cute. Um, that doesn't really like go over as well when a business is really considering uh, if they're gonna use your service or something like that. Um, that's really the only one that stands out to me. Um, I think otherwise it's similar. Yeah, I do think professionalism would be more of a key point um, if it was a B2B interaction on social. Um, Cause like John said, you know, business to consumer, that's just, that's some cute fun. You know, you guys are hanging out in the space, but business to business, you got to present yourself that way um, and be professional. Yeah. I also think that um, we just integrated LinkedIn into the platform because it's the question that's happening more and more as people are almost starting to see LinkedIn as, as a, as a, a business social media platform rather than just a professional networking platform. So I think that is going to be a very big player in the next year, especially as we get it deeper and deeper into the B2B space to see these best practices as well. Awesome. Um, all right, we have a couple more good questions continuing to flow in. So jumping to the next one, um, how would you approach an influencer program? Is it better to start or test with multiple micro-influencers and see how that content does before going after someone with a bigger following and thus likely a, requiring a significantly larger investment? I can speak to this a bit. I think, I think slow and steady wins the race with this one. So going with more micro or nano influencers. So they're more relatable. So those people thought they have a more real approach to the product. So once that starts to grow within that space, then approaching someone with a million plus following would be um, the best tactic. Yeah, I think I joked on on um, one of our, our last webinars that uh, as someone who works in the industry, I find myself um, skewed when I'm, you know, looking through Instagram and I see like five different influencers around like, you know, the holidays are all posting their um, like bowl and branch, you know, right. bedding and, and, and bath towels promotions. And I find myself going and like actually cherry picking. I'm like, okay, well, which influencer do I want to receive the credit for my right. that I'm about to make with their 20% off coupon? Right. Like, who do you want to give a payday? That's, that's what that says. Exactly. But. Yeah. But even to the, to the uninformed, um, you know, the, the people who aren't working in marketing and thinking about it that way, I think, you know, your point is that the authenticity of those micro influencers um, can go a long way in terms of um, letting you know whether that strategy is going to work well for you at all. Cool. 
Um, all right. Next question we had that came in is, um, what is your prediction for Twitter moving forward? What content works best besides just news and sports? Twitter should be the main or should Twitter be um, the main event of a social media campaign or should it be more of a supporting element? Yeah, I could talk a little bit here. Um, I think that t Twitter really sort of is its own thing. Um, Twitter can be the main element of your strategy, I guess, if you have a little bit more of a lax or perhaps a um, little crazy right of a brand voice where you have a little bit of that freedom to be chiming in on Twitter. Um, I feel like Twitter can be like snarky and like funny and sort of curt in ways like that. And um, so if your brand is willing to sort of be a little bit edgy and sort of risk taking, um, Twitter can be really cool uh, for that kind of thing. Um, but if it's gonna be more of the sort of approved through the department marketing and things like that, I think Twitter is really best used for sort of like status updates and things. I know we have um, some clients that leverage Twitter very well for sort of um, like server uh, status and things like that. Um, and so people will often go to Twitter to sort of get updates um, on brands uh, in that sense. But yeah, if you're willing to take a little bit of a risk and sort of develop a new voice and maybe try to make some jokes that maybe not everyone would like, but enough people like it that it makes it worth it. Um, you know, I think like Slim Jim is a good example. They just have this like absolutely wild like brand voice um, on Instagram as well and all over. But that sort of thing translates well to Twitter. Um, but Sounds like as part of your answer, you're suggesting that it's outside of just um, your own brand's flexibility in terms of posting original content, but also your brand's willingness and ability to engage with other people on Twitter in order to drive engagement back to your brand, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's like in getting involved in conversations with users on Twitter. Um, Which sort of, carries some risk. <laughs> yeah, of course, right? I mean, that's sort of, I think if I had to sum it up, it's um, Twitter is really great if you're willing to risk it. Um, I, I think that, you know, there's a lot of like Twitter specific um, content themes and, and sort of trends in the, in the same vein as like TikTok. Um, but if you want to maintain a Twitter presence, but don't want to do all those things, um, stay away from just posting like the typical like, oh, like sit on sale now and sort of those like regular approved messaging type things um, and, and get fun with it. I think it really pays off more when um, when you risk it on Twitter. Don't yeah. hold me to that, though. <laughs> if you say something. And get Don said, <laughs> I really yeah. think Twitter is just like if you're not being funny and you're not giving a live update on something that I like, it, I need to catch the train. Is the train late? It, like, is the news going to be what's going on overseas? Like that's where it, people use Twitter as a newspaper. So if you're not giving, like, if you're not reading the comics and you're not reading what happened yesterday, then I don't think anyone's interested. I do have one example to kind of counter that. And it's, it's the fandoms. It's the, cause like the, I don't know, the, the community it's a community Wheel of time you know it's it's yeah. it's to be blunt it's the nerds that are obsessed you know that are like they it's they live there they are talking to each other it's the wheel of like wheel of time world you know they have yeah. their own hashtags they're waiting for anything to be posted so if you know that you have a voracious fan base that already exists on twitter 
I mean, that's a slam dunk. It's a one tweet, hundred thousand engagements and all tons of replies, but you have to, you have to know that that's going to happen. So uh, semi-related to that, we had a follow-up question that just came in um, focused on um, what types of, what, what content types are most successful essentially on Twitter. So someone asked when sharing topical news content and or stories on Twitter, do you recommend using a link with an auto-populated thumbnail for your tweet or is performance really best with an actual image? Um, I guess it, in a way, I guess it sort of depends on if you're linking to sort of owned content. Um, if you're a magazine or something where you're trying to link back to your website, um, I, you know, maybe I would hope that sort of the thumbnail that's auto-populated is one that was chosen by you, right? And so it should work there. Um, I think on, in general, link an actual link with auto-populated uh, stuff just looks better on Twitter. It's more inviting to sort of click on. Um, if you add sort of like a bit.ly link at the end of just a text thing and add a picture, um, just feels a little bit less clean. Um, not that it won't work, but um, I think people are less inclined to click the small bit.ly link than they are on the you know large linked box and, and sort of yeah. legit looking article. Um, I think there's a little bit of a, um, you know, is this yeah. legitimate yeah. <laughs> uh, sort of look? That's the perfect example of something I know. We we love a good uh, A-B test at Listen First Media, but I think that, you know, that's the perfect example of something where, you know, set yourself up with a, a, a little bit of a test and, and try posting five times one way, five times the other way and compare your engagement and, and kind of get the answers that way. Um, so that that can, you know, help you answer for your brand specifically. All right. Um, well, I always love a good webinar where we don't have to tap into any of our pre-canned audience questions for fear of, of lack of engagement from the audience. So thank you to everybody who joined us today and for everybody who submitted questions. Um, it was awesome. Of course, a very, very special thank you to Sam, John, and Sawyer for taking the time to share all of your insights. Um, I know we got a lot of good feedback coming in throughout um, that the, the content was really helpful for everybody. So um, we will be sending out the recording early next week um, uh, to everybody on the call. And in addition to the recording, we'll also include information on our next webinar that I teased earlier, which is going to be the four most underused metrics for benchmarking campaigns on social media, um, which is going to be held on February 24th at 2 p.m. East Coast. So um, thank you again, everybody, for joining. Um, hope everybody has a wonderful rest of the day and week, and we will see you in February.